Welcome to today's discussion, Inside Homeland Security Education, sponsored by American Military University. Now here's your host, Scott Massioni. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Dr. Monique Harishkanazi, founder and CEO of the Harishkanazi Group. She's also a faculty member and alumna of American Military University. You're listening to our discussion, Inside Homeland Security Education. I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni. And uh, Monique, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. First of all, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your background. You have a really fascinating background, and um, you've gone a lot of things in the industry world, a lot of things in the educational world. So would you mind just sort of filling us in a little bit on uh, some of your adventures? Sure. So uh, first, I joined the United States Air Force back in 2002. I did over 13 years of service, moved about 11 times, deployments, TDYs, and um, had a great career. I ended, actually ended it here in the Washington, D.C. area because I went to pursue some uh, civilian goals here in the area. And while I was in the Air Force, I started school. I initially started with the University of Maryland. And after four years of being with them, I had a friend tell me that, hey, you know, American Military University is a great school. And I was sold because she told me classes were unique because they had like a lot of prior military professors um, that were teaching courses that I was interested in. So I switched my degree from criminal justice to homeland security. This was back in 2008, March of 2008. And I graduated with a degree in homeland security in February 2011. And a big coincidence when I decided that I wanted to separate to pursue some civilian goals, I actually applied to be a professor at American Military University. And about two days after my final days with the Air Force, I was hired as an associate professor. So it was a pretty awesome experience. Wow. And so what did American Military University bring you that you were kind of looking for that maybe you weren't finding in that traditional um, university path for your goals and all those types of things? Well, number one, it was the flexibility because mm -hmm. I moved so often. Like I said, 13 years, I moved about 11 times. So it's hard to sit in a traditional classroom when you're constantly working long hours or you're on call to go either out of the country or to a different state to do training. So the flexibility to me was awesome. And then the fact that the teachers understood where we were coming from because we were active duty service members, it really sold me to transfer and become a student. So and the quality of education is phenomenal because not only do these people have education, they have the experience of being in the military so they can apply their real world scenarios to the classroom and we can relate as students. So that's pretty pretty much what sold me on so, AMU. And and from there, you've gone on to create this consulting firm for education. Um, it has a lot to do with Homeland Security, which you you know majored in. Um, how did your education sort of um, blossom that and... Um, create sort of a, a, a stepping point for you to go into other things? So I've always been amazed by criminal justice and homeland security. And I think it's great that today in the 21st century that those two are finally combined. You know, so when I was in the military, I wanted to be a cop. And unfortunately, every time I tried, they had met their quota. So I was like, you know, I can get a degree in criminal justice, but still have homeland security as a background because a lot of the jobs that I did was not only you know classified, but it dealt a lot with national homeland security. So um, in the realm of trying to find what I wanted to do when I grow up type thing, <laughs> right. you know, I was like, I'm gonna keep pursuing my education. I finally got my master's degree in 2013. And it was when I moved to the Pentagon, I worked for the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dr. Ash Carter. And he had heard that I was teaching part-time. I got my first gig teaching at Tiffin University, teaching criminal justice. 
And he was like, you know, he started calling me doctor because he knew <laughs> he was like, I know you're going to pursue your doctoral degree. And, you know, if you want to keep teaching at higher levels, you're going to need that. And I was sold. Two months later, I applied for a doctoral program. I entered, I worked on my doctoral program while I was active duty. And it was great to apply that real world into not only my classes, but I was allowed to apply it in my dissertation too. So it was then that I was like, you know, the importance of education. I'm going to keep going to school, keep going to school. And I finally got my doctoral degree in 2015. And here we are in 2018. I'm working on another master's wow. with AMU in psychology. So I'm never going to stop. Well, that's high praise from Ash Carter, who has like eight uh, doctoral degrees, really. I mean, I think it's actually three, but he he is a very well-educated person. I think one of them is in uh, medieval history or something oh, like wow. that, right? Um, and nuclear physics. Um, so so tell us about your consulting firm that you have. Uh, what, what are the uh, goals that you have for it and what have you, you done with it? So I first started the consulting firm back in 2014 when I was on active duty, and I basically applied the concepts and training that I learned as the administrative side of the Air Force, and I applied it to my business to provide, you know, classrooms, programs, curriculum for professional military development centers and for civilian universities. And it was just focused on education at the time. And then I transformed it to a security and education firm, the Haresh Kanazi Group, back in April of this year to focus more not only on education, but security, because I feel like those two go hand in hand. So it's basically doing advanced research on the scientific notation of terrorism, homeland national security, and then eventually I want to apply psychology to homeland national security and terrorism. So who are you working with in, in this group? Is it is it mostly students? Is it schools? Um, you know, how what's kind of the outreach there? For the business? Yeah. yeah. So for the business, I have subcontractors and what they do is they provide the curriculum to help me build based on who our customers are. Mm -hmm. We basically deal with universities if they need new curriculum established. We'll do that for classes and it does benefit the students, but it benefits the universities as well. And it's all about taking about what we know as practitioners of practice in our fields and putting it in curriculum and making it modernized so it's current with our threats, our you know everyday life and technology as it advances. So we're going to get a little bit more later on into what you think are some of the big goals and big uh, challenges for national security in the, the United States and education and things like that later on. So would you mind just maybe laying out for us a little bit of uh, what some of the big challenges for national security are at this point in Homeland Security? Uh, I know that there's certain targets that maybe the United States hasn't taken into account or really gotten as uh, bolstered as they should at this point. Well, right now, I feel like one of the critical factors to homeland security is port security and railroad security. I feel like those are the two that are overshadowed because we've seen uh, so many threats based as domestic terrorism, domestic extremism. Now we're back. Like, I feel like we're going back in time. We're, we're dealing with hate groups. They're expanding. And so we're focused on that. We're focused on what's going on at the presidential administration and everything. We're not focused on our security threats. And I feel like port security, I consider it one of the soft targets because based on the United States, people feel like because we're secure and we're like the global police, like we're we're safe when it comes to port security. And we're totally not. Um, I went to a conference at the University of Southern California and they had a port security expert there. And he basically told us about two percent of the imports that come into the United States are only, you know, investigated, examined, and I found that fascinating, 2%. Yeah. I mean, most of our, you know, trade, our imports and products that come from overseas, and you're telling me only 2%. 
and it's due to manpower, the hours, and you know how long it takes things to come from overseas. So all those are factors in how much gets inspected. Very interesting. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about these hard and soft targets that you've been mentioning. My guest today is Dr. Monique Harishkanazi, founder and CEO of the Harishkanazi Group. I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni, on the discussion Inside Homeland Security Education, sponsored by American Military University on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. American Military University is a respected educator to national security professionals, a distinction earned by never forgetting their students are priority one. They keep tuition affordable, attract field-tested faculty, and provide curriculum that helps keep you ahead of industry trends. When you enroll at AMU, you join a community respected by area employers. Get started at amuonline.com. AMU is part of American Public University System, which is certified to operate by CHEV. Welcome back to the discussion Inside Homeland Security Education, sponsored by American Military University on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. My guest today is Dr. Monique Harishkanazi, founder and CEO of the Harishkanazi Group, and she's also a alumna and faculty member at American Military University. I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni. We were talking a little bit before about hard and soft targets, and that may be something that people aren't exactly familiar with in a Homeland Security sort of uh, way. So would you mind maybe explaining what's a hard target and what is a soft target? Sure. So essentially a hard target is like a building or facility, anything that's stationary. Soft targets are usually anything that's mobile or it could be unfortunately, people as soft targets. So when I speak of that, I'm talking about port security, soft targets, because our ships, the barges, the carriers, everything that has our products are being shipped and can be easily targeted. Um, Hard facilities can be targeted as well. Like I said, they're stationary, so it makes it easier for an adversary to target, plan, and execute their plot to destroy whatever they are trying to destroy for whatever reason. Right. So when we see things like mass shootings or things like that, that tends to be a, a softer target. Right. Right. Um, and, and so we were talking about port security, railroad security, um, and you mentioned some of the threats. There's not a lot of um, people looking into the, these actual boats when they come in and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, what are possible solutions for, uh, you know, protecting these areas more, especially in an area and a time when budgets are pretty austere and, and constricted? See, that's the issue. It's the money. Right. I mean, if you have the money, then you have unlimited recommendations and resolutions. But I feel like we can be a lot smarter in the military. We always had the saying, work harder, work smarter, you know, work more with less. So, I mean, if you have very innovative and intelligent people that realize we have we are tight on resources, but we can make something work, I feel like there needs to be legislative action when it comes to port security. Our Coast Guard is responsible for all our waters, you know, and to build legislative action to put more emphasis on port and railroad security. And if you have to sacrifice some money to put it into it, I feel like it needs to. I feel like Congress has a way of finding money when they need to. So if you want to protect your waterways and your railroad systems and protect your citizens, uh, there's money that I feel like can be sacrificed or appropriated to fund you know, the needs to support either the manpower, different and when I say different, I mean different tactics that what they've been using before. The 2% inspections, that's something that's not really conducive to what we're dealing with today. And I guarantee you right now as we're talking, there's people, there's groups that sit here thinking, how can we destroy their, their ports? How can we destroy their railroads so we can temporarily make them fall? And that's what people are looking at because they're looking at the United States right now 
as the joke of the world. You know what I mean? So it's like it's easy for people to make plans when we're distracted by other things that's going on in the news. Um, so that's why I feel like DHS really needs to be proactive of working with Congress to make sure they do more innovative and modernized acts and policies to protect our waterways and our railroad systems. Monique, you've written a lot about international threats. That's Al-Qaeda, ISIS, those types of groups. Are they diffused at this point? You know, we don't hear about them in the news as much. We hear about, about Afghanistan maybe, you know, once a week or something compared to every day in the past. So um, where are we in, in that realm? Because you don't hear about them doesn't mean that they don't exist. You know, it doesn't mean that they're not conjuring up new plans to either attack other countries or the United States. Um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, I wouldn't say they've settled down, but eventually the countries of, you know, basically Syria and Afghanistan, Afghanistan have taken the majority of their major cities back, which is a victory for them. Not necessarily, you know, a victory for the terrorist groups, but they're still committing attacks throughout the world. And that's what we need to focus on. Even the isolated small incidents that they provoke doesn't mean like, oh, they're defeated. We still need to be cognizant of what they can do in the future. ISIS is one of the strongest, most dangerous terrorist groups. I read a book on terrorism, particularly ISIS, where they were making at least $2 billion annually yeah. to support their, you know, their motives and their executions and their plans. And that's some that's very impressive for a terrorist group. You know, when I was stationed in Afghanistan, I was deployed out there in 2010. It was the Taliban that was the biggest threat. And even Al Qaeda at this point doesn't even support what ISIS does. You know, so they basically separated themselves from ISIS. And that's what shows you that if a terrorist group will separate themselves from another terrorist group, then you can understand how dangerous you know, that a group can be. So just because we don't hear things in the media and we don't hear anything a lot going on doesn't mean that they're not doing anything. I've written many articles on Homeland Security, which you can find on www.inhomelandsecurity.com. Let's talk about how you take these lessons learned in the classroom and push them toward the real world. How have students uh, made these, operationalized these types of things and um, turned it into actual policy or to stopping certain security threats? Once again, the great thing about the students, most of them are military. So if they directly dealt with, you know, terrorist groups, there's a lot of military that go outside the wire, you know, to protect us. And they can share their experiences to a certain extent. But the thing about it is when they have experience and then they move up in the ranks to where they're more at the strategic level and can affect change, you know, they'll make solutions and recommendations in the classroom. Like, this is what I experienced when I was deployed here. This is what I realized, the vulnerabilities and the security, you know, security risks that were out there that made us vulnerable, you know, not also without, you know, in garrison in the United States, but overseas, this is what made us vulnerable. And when we came back and we did, you know, after action reports, we realized this is what we can do to affect change. This is what we can do to save more soldiers. This is what we can do to go to Congress and say, hey, we directly was dealt with this. We directly was impacted by this. And this is what I feel like we should do to, you know, make changes out there overseas. We still have people that are deployed, you know, in combat zones. It might not be exacerbated like it was a decade ago or even five years ago. But, you know, there's people out there in support positions that can go out there and do research, you know, and bring that back to the United States and be like, this is what we need to do to affect change and protect not only our soldiers, but protect our citizens as well. So, so that's the great thing about bringing that information to the classroom because it provokes ideas. 
you know, and there's a lot of students that have contacts on Capitol Hill that say, hey, that's a great idea. I'm going to go to Capitol Hill with this and see if somebody will listen to me. So that's the great thing about that. It sounds like a feedback loop almost where they, yeah, you know, they exactly. learn more in the government. They come back mm-hmm. and then do the same thing again. Yeah, I'm amazed by the students. I learned more from them, more than what they know. When they, when I read the discussions in the classrooms, I'm like, that's those are excellent ideas. And people, I don't say people underestimate our soldiers, our military people, but brilliant minds bring such great ideas to the table. And it starts in the classroom. And then when you can actually see it, when it's actually, you know, went and made a law or, you know, a policy change because of a student, it's a great thing to see. We're talking with Dr. Monique Harashkenazi. She's the founder and CEO of the Harashkenazi Group. She's also a alumna and faculty member of American Military University. I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni, on the discussion Inside Homeland Security Education, sponsored by American Military University on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. American Military University is a respected educator to national security professionals, a distinction earned by never forgetting their students are priority one. They keep tuition affordable, attract field-tested faculty, and provide curriculum that helps keep you ahead of industry trends. When you enroll at AMU, you join a community respected by area employers. Get started at amuonline.com. AMU is part of American Public University System, which is certified to operate by CHEV. Welcome back to our discussion inside Homeland Security Education, by sponsored by American Military University on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. My guest today is Dr. Monique Harashkenazi. She's founder and CEO of the Harashkenazi Group, and I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni. We are talking about education and Homeland Security threats. How do you take these these really real-world situations that are hard to replicate and bring them into the classroom. This is something that your group does in curriculum and things like that. What about something like a a, a little more real-world and hands-on, right? Like a bomb diffusing, something like that. That's something that some of your students learn. How can you teach that without um, going and touching a real bomb, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, bomb diffusing is not my specialty, but sure, sure. I know some people who have done that or have that career field in the military. And it's all about... You know, especially when you're working in an online environment, it's all about having videos. Some people are more cognizant of, you know, lectures and like reading words and stuff. Some people are visual and they have to see actual visual to understand the concepts of stuff. So I figure like with bomb diffusing as an example, um, do a video mm-hmm. step by step what you do, you know, and give the background, the history behind it. And some students are really, really thankful for the videos because even though some probably prefer a traditional setting, they know that online classes are, you know, more flexible to their lifestyle. So we have to, as professors, we have to make it so they can learn, they can understand what's going on. So, I mean, PowerPoint presentations, videos, anything you can do to make it more visual so they can, you know, visually see in their mind, this is how something works and apply it to either their everyday life or apply it to their career, I think that's the most beneficial thing. So, so yeah. one of the things we've talked to a lot of uh, intelligence officials during this uh, series with American Military University, and uh, they've talked a lot about the importance of diversity when you're learning. Mm-hmm. Um, could you maybe speak to that, that diversity in the classroom and how that helps with national security and homeland security? You know, I think it's very important to have diversity. Once again, as I mentioned, we have military law enforcement, but we also have people that never step foot in the military, never right. been a police officer. You know, they have different career fields and they're coming in because they want to either work in a national or homeland security position or they want to be in the military. So having that diversity is very important because not only do they not have that experience like the other students do, but they can bring some knowledge 
that maybe we don't have access to. And one of the things we haven't had a chance to talk about much, but you also dabble in, is, is policy. And uh, Homeland Security Policy, you actually wrote a, a pretty big paper on how the F-35, a very um, contentious uh, <laughs> weapon program, and also something that's cost the United States a, a lot of money, um, how that can enforce policy. So would you mind just kind of explaining a little bit about that sort of role of the, the plane? Okay, so the F-35, Joint Strike Fighter, there's three different variants and it's divvied to branch of service, like F-35A is for the Air Force, the B is for the Navy, and the C is for uh, the Marine Corps. They all have different variants in how they land and how they take off. This is pri primary differences, but uh, the F-35 is a stealth, one of the most technologically advanced stealth systems that we have to date. Um, it's, cost, <laughs> it's cost the federal government over $500 billion. Right. Um, <laughs> and... Um, now that it's out of production and it's flight worthy, um, it's one of the things that we're using for our current threats. You know, a lot of times we have, you know, threats against the United States and our allies and security partners. And we have to have that type of acquisition that can protect our people from abroad and in the air. That's one of the things that constitutes air superiority and air dominance. So I wrote that dissertation back in 2015 on how the F-35 strike fighter, joint strike fighter, excuse me, um, affects national security guidance. And the results were that the scheduling mishaps, the cost, and some of the software issues were one of the things that was affecting national security guidance. And the recommendation was to find ways to produce not only the aircraft faster, but to stop costing so much because taxpayers were getting to the point to where, okay, you've been working on this aircraft for 15, 16 right. years. We don't see the benefit of it. It's supposed to be the most advanced weapon that we have to make us superior to rest of countries in the world. But if it's not protecting us because we're not using it and then we're forced to use you know, antiquated generational aircraft to protect us, that's an issue. So one of the recommendations was going to Congress to figure out how can we prevent, you know, more cost of this aircraft? What can we do to fix the software issues in an expeditious manner and basically stay on top to what we said, protect national security? We need that aircraft. We can't rely on older aircraft to protect us because we're spending billions to, you know, continue the maintenance on old aircraft when you have this aircraft that's supposed to be out already. So... Yeah, that's what I had did about three years ago. And have you found, as things have gone on, that uh, it's become more uh, cost-friendly, more schedule-friendly, um, or is it still kind of in that sort of quagmire of, of uh, acquisition? You know, it's more cost-friendly. Um, General Bogdan, mm -hmm. he was the F-35 program manager, and he had predicted that in the next few years it's going to be so cost-effective that everybody's going to want to buy it. Right. You know, so I see good things. I'm actually shopping around my research because I'm expounding on that. I want to talk about how the F-35 affected our foreign military sales and what about our security partners that invested in the program, but now they're not really starting to see the benefits and then, you know, how many they initially want to purchase. Now it's like we don't want to purchase so many because <laughs> we want to be safe. So I want to do research on that 
and basically add on what you just asked me to give, you know, a better answer on that. Right. Well, Monique, thank you so much for joining. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much. I'd once again like to thank uh, Dr. Monique Harashkanazi. She's the founder and CEO of the Harashkanazi Group. And I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni. You're listening to Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search AMU. Listen to the entire discussion of Inside Homeland Security Education, sponsored by American Military University. Go to Federal News Network, search AMU.